Hello folks, welcome back to the High Performance Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Ward. Before we get into today's show, I want to talk about what it means to be a high performance human. It's got nothing to do with how fast you can swim, bike or run, but it has got everything to do with your sleep, nutrition, physical activity, personal relationships, your work habits, and so much more. And if these are areas you'd like to improve on, then we would love to help you. I currently have some availability to take on a couple of clients, and Beth, my wife, who's a certified life coach, also has some availability. So depending on what you're looking to focus on, we have your back. Contact details are in the show notes below. Right, on to this week's episode. So this is part two of the conversation with ultra running coach Jason Coop. Last week, we chatted about why VO2 max is a key factor for ultra running, but running economy is not. Why volume is really, really important. The effects of downhill training and how to build training specificity into your schedule. Today, obviously, we've got some different topics and we resume with me asking Jason about how soon you should start your training for your next ultra event. I guess that answers one of my questions is how soon in advance should I start my training? Um, and I guess it's as early as possible. How much time you got? Yeah, I mean, you know, I tend to be an idealist when I, or I, I at least start with the most idealistic situation from training. I want four years, right? I want an Olympic cycle to go through everything. Yeah. And I'll tell you one thing: when I, especially when I work with elite athletes, hundred percent four years down the line is something that we're taking into consideration. I just had this conversation with an elite athlete uh, uh, of mine just two two days ago is let's take into consideration three years, four years and look look at the progression that can happen over that period mm-hmm. of time. I know where you want to get you're verbalizing to me, hey, I'm here and I want to get here. Let's give yourself a long period of time to do it. So, so yeah, I mean, that doesn't mean that a reasonably fit triathlete, you know, you probably have a hyper fit, you know, very focused audience, right? Triathletes tend to, you know, put a lot of time and effort into their sport and they come to the, they come to the game well, well prepared in a lot of cases, not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, they can transition into an ultra marathon relatively quick, quickly. I mean, we see this all the time with hybrid athletes that go from long course triathlon or even short course triathlon into ultra marathon. They can adapt into it very quickly and, and often be very successful. But giving yourself more time, giving yourself more time, I'm going to keep coming back to this. It's the biggest advantage you can give yourself better than any equipment, any nutrition intervention or anything like that. Just give yourself time. Just finishing off on training. Now, Jason, before we move on to some of the other things, um, I know a lot of folks who live in the city. These are the these are the type triple type A people that see triathlon as a big a big challenge. And then when they've done that, it's like, oh, hold on a minute, I want to. I've read about um, that, oh, you know, the Western states, and I want to get the belt buckle, or I want to go and do this big race up here. Um, but they're in the city. If you're living in London, there aren't many hills around there, yeah. and there's not much rough terrain to train on, and um, you probably living uh, amongst a lot of densely populated uh, areas with a lot of traffic. So you're in the gym. Um, thoughts on training for an ultra on the treadmill? I guess if it's all you've got, then that's all you can use, right? Yeah. I mean, you have to understand that your overall cardiovascular fitness is the biggest driver of everything. You know, you asked me earlier, like, what are the big, you know, perfor- what are the bigger things that correlate with performance? It's just really fitness, right? This fitness is fitness is fitness. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're doing a race at altitude or race in the heat or race over technical terrain or race over the mountains or the race through Death Valley or whatever it is. Fitness just tends to drive most of the performance part of the most of the performance part of the equation. Um, now, specific to people who live in the city or live on flats and they're running in mountainous terrain. We you can absolutely leverage some uh, some of the science behind the concept that I mentioned earlier, right? It takes very little load in an eccentric form to produce a robust adaptation. So if you design a training camp out in the mountains three to six weeks in advance of your ultra, that's going to be a pretty potent stimulus. You know, just one training camp, two to three day training camp. Maybe you intensify the volume by twenty or thirty percent or something like that, or increase the volume by twenty or thirty percent. Um, that can that can provide a uh, enough of a stimulus to 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 kind of get reasonably better. I do that with athletes all the time when we're designing these training camps away from their home, you know, away from their home environment, not just to be able to increase the volume because they can eat, sleep, run, repeat. You know, that's all they have to focus on. 
but also get them on a different environment from a from a training perspective and produce those very specific adaptations. So you can leverage that that it doesn't take a lot to produce adaptations on that on that very you know across that very across that very aspect. So you can have hope. You know, there's um, there are a lot of athletes that train for Leadville, train for the Ultra Tour de Mont Blanc, train for you know the Western States 100 that live in urban areas. Now, if you're doing it at the elite side of the spectrum, it's incompatible. Just just point point blank. The the field is too good. There's too much specificity at play to really get away with in a highly competitive event. The lack of specificity on a particular type of terrain. You can't train in the city to do good at the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc or Western States or any of these highly kind of competitive races. But for most normal people out there, you know, maybe that makes 20, 30, 40 minutes difference at the end of the day. If you've got enough fitness to cover up for that, that's not that's not a bad deal. And what we talked about um different training modalities. Um, if you're a triathlete and you're a bit nervous about just A, giving up some of your pool time and riding your bike, but also maybe you've got injury concerns, which mean that your body can't handle high volumes of running. Is is there any relevance for adding swimming and biking in as some cross-training there? Or do we really need to be spending time on our feet? I tend to honestly hedge more with hiking. So if you want to try to use a less injurious modality right we try to shift things more towards uh, uh more towards hiking than using the other using the other modes i i don't like well here let me tell you what i do like so i will use swimming and cycling as a recovery modality if the athlete is kind of volume limited and so you're trying to kind of come up with any every sort of uh, every sort of efficiency possible to make the miles that you are running and hiking kind of count the most. And so in those cases, we'll do the endurance run and the specific runs and the interval runs and things like that in a running modality. And then for recovery side, we'll use the pool and uh, pool, pool on the bike. I don't like to try to drive adaptation in any of the other type of classic cross training modes, whether it's swimming, cycling, elliptical, Stairmaster and things like that. And it kind of comes down to what we were mentioning earlier. It's the oxygen delivery side of things. It's just running as a sport and as a mode of exercise just commands so much oxygen delivery that it's hard to elicit the same amount of adaptation in a cross-training mode as compared to a running mode. You have to essentially do everything a whole lot harder. And it, it again, it kind of messes up the, the periodization in, in a lot of ways. So I'll try to avoid that at all costs. Um, so bottom line is, is recovery to- totally fine to use that if you need to, if you don't need to, there's no real you know advantage to doing it in my opinion. Um, but if you're trying to, to drive adaptation through those modes, you, it, it's a much different proposition and I don't think you're going to be successful at it for reasonably trained or reasonably experienced athletes. Okay. Right. I, I think I, know where you're coming from on this one but i've had some questions about it from um, some of the listeners um strength training your thoughts on strength training as a as a part of the uh, a part of the program and uh, yes no if yes what and, and if we are using it are we using it mostly to prevent injury and build resilience and robustness or are we trying to use it for improving performance yeah so this is this is probably the topic that gets thrown most out of context and that's being, and that's because people ask people turn to think of the strength training thing as being black and white, and it's really it's really not. Or you're either a strength training person or you're not a strength training mm-hmm. person. So to start the context on this, I think you need to think about strength training in a trail and ultramarathon perspective across two different silos. Now th- there's a little bit of Venn diagram overlap between these silos, but work with me here. The first silo is to acutely improve your performance. So you're doing something from a strength training side of things that is going to impact your, that is going to directly impact your race performance. The second one is, is you're doing strength training in order to like improve your training availability through getting injured less, right? You're trying to become more resilient, robust, tougher joints, whatever you kind of want to, whatever, whatever vocabulary you want to use on that. Now there is a Venn diagram overlap on those, but I think the programming behind achieving either one of those angles can be can be quite different depending upon what what uh, what what your end goal is. 
So let's take the first side of the equation, right? Strength training in a classic marathon or track running perspective, when you're looking at it as an ergogenic tool, right? As a tool that is going to be to improve performance. It's not exclusively, but largely focused on improving running economy, right? You're creating better springs with your legs. And this is very clearly shown in the literature, right? And it doesn't take a big intervention to do it. You can do, you can jump rope, right? I mean, they've done interventions where that's all they've done. Just jump rope and you can improve running economy. And it, and it can actually be quite, uh, quite effective in terms of improving the end performance as well. But let's go back to my earlier statement, right? Running economy is not highly correlated with performance from an ultramarathon perspective. So if you want to use strength training as an ergogenic tool in trail running, we have to think about it a lot differently than we do in the road marathon world. It, and it probably doesn't have a lot to do with running economy. So what else do we know about trail runners? Well, what, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Frederick Saboteur Pastor, he studied a group of elite French road runners and elite French trail runners. So two different cohorts of people that were kind of similar in their uh, kind of similar in their their relative performance index, so to speak. They're both on the national team, right? Two different groups of athletes. They're both national caliber athletes, one on the road, one on the track. And some of this correlative data that I mentioned earlier has come out of this study where running economy just isn't, you know, highly correlated with performance. But one of the interesting things that he found in the study is that the trail runners exhibited greater strength and power properties as compared to the road runners, despite not doing any strength training and the, and the road runners were doing strength training. So we can take two things from this. First off is the road runners strength training program sucked. Let's just like get that out of the way, right? If I was a coach and I was coaching a road runner and I had them doing a strength training uh, uh, program and I compared them to a trail runner who was not doing strength training and that trail runner had better strength properties than the person I was coaching, I would <laughs> yeah. raise my hand and say, I'm doing a bad job. Like point, like point blank, there's no other way that you can kind of get around it. That's not all that material. It's just something I like to kind of poke fun at. But somehow the sport of trail running elicits higher strength qualities. And this makes all the sense in the world, right? You're running up and down hills and over rocks and there's some, you know, almost plyometric explosive component to it, especially at the mm -hmm. elite level um, where they're having to go very fast over technical, uh, technical terrain. And what that means from a programming standpoint is that there's a higher burden of proof on the strength training itself. So if you're going to use strength training as an ergogenic tool in some way, we now have these two guide rails to operate from. The first guide rail is, is that if you're aiming the strength training at running economy improvements, probably not a good thing to aim at because that's not all that impactful. The second thing is, is when you design the strength training program for a trail runner, the burden of that strength training program to elicit greater strength, which is what the purpose of a strength training program should be, right? To somehow elicit a greater amount of strength. The burden of that program is higher because they're already getting a certain strength component just as a natural, mm -hmm. just as a natural mm -hmm. byproduct, uh, natural byproduct of their training. Outside of that, we kind of don't know what to aim at. And this has always been my, not my issue, but my kind of grapple with designing a strength training program for a trail runner is what are you aiming the adaptations at? We're not aiming it at making the legs better springs, right? Because we know that that's not going to be impactful for, or we think at least that that's not going to be very impactful from, from a trail running perspective, going back to all that previous research. So then what else are we aiming at? Are we trying to condition the legs to better handle eccentric activation? Like we were mentioning hmm. earlier, the downhill component. Well, we know that doesn't take much, right? And we know we can do it in a natural environment. So that's one silo, the performance silo. And I, I don't have a good answer for it. I don't know how, I, I don't know how we could look at all of the data that exists and say, this is the way I would design a strength training program specifically for a trail runner to improve their performance. We don't have, a, we don't have a target to aim at, to, to mm -hmm. kind of complete the intervention. Sure. We can make them stronger. Like that's just strength training program one-on-one, 
But specifically, where are we aiming the intervention at is is a, is definitely an open question. Um, while we do know things that we don't want to aim at, finding exactly what properties we want to elicit, it's a little it's it, it, it's it's unknown. So that's the ergogenic side of things. The other side of it is the injury side of things, and there's very little there's very little evidence specific to trail and ultra running, but I do think we can borrow things from the general running sphere. If you really scrutinize that research, and this is where all the strength training coaches start to throw eggs and tomatoes at me. If you, (laughs) if you really scrutinize that research, you find just as many non-directional arrows as you do positive arrows. Meaning if you introduce a strength training intervention and then you track the injury rate or the days lost due to injury from Mm. a strength training group to a non-strength training group. A lot of times it's a nothing burger and it should be stronger than that. If you're doing some additional type of training and I know we can all pull individual studies and try and this one had, you know, better outcomes and that one had better outcomes and things like that. But when you look at them on balance, it's a hard justification to make part of that hard justification to make when you look at it on balance is because the strength training interventions are generalized. And if you're doing things from an injury prevention perspective, they should be more individualized. And so I I completely get that. If you're using strength training in like a physical therapy setting, very specifically for an individual, absolutely, that can be effective in helping to prevent or to mitigate certain, certain types of injuries. But if you're using a blanket strength training program to prevent injuries, that's where it gets, um, that's, that's where it gets a little bit murky. And so where I've kind of come down to on this from a, from a, just a very practical point of view, because everybody's like, well, then what do you do? Right. You just went through this big, huge dialogue and I'm not, I'm not any better informed as I was, uh, just a couple of minutes ago. Um, if an athlete wants to undertake a strength training program, great. I will design something that will improve their health, their fitness, their longevity, more from a lifestyle perspective than a sporting, than, than a sporting perspective. And I'll aim the intervention around that and try to avoid the terrain traps of having a really high strength training day kind of mismatched with a really high, uh, uh, a Mm. high workout day. But what I don't do is oversell it into either one of those silos that I just mentioned. I don't oversell it into a performance silo. Hey, this is going to improve your performance because I, I, I can't authentically say that. And I don't oversell it into an injury prevention silo in most mm-hmm. cases. And in the cases where they're in the injury prevention side of things, I'm turning that over to a PT because they do it better than I do in person. So that's where I, that's where I land on it. I don't think that we can conclusively say that it's a benefit or a detriment, but I, I, I will tell you this. I do not go out of my way to introduce a strength training intervention from an ergogenic perspective with any of my athletes. I have elite athletes that do do strength training, but they can, they can tell you the amount of, I, I take an MVP, right? Minimum viable product approach to it. I'm not doing things that are, you know, big whiz bang or anything like that. I certainly, I put time and effort into it, obviously, but it's a very, very minimal amount to try to just cover the bases more than anything else. Now, I think all, all the way through what you were saying there, I was thinking, yeah, lifestyle, longevity, you know, health and fitness. It's just another one of those things. It might have some benefit. It might not. Um, I take direction just like you do. I have all, I have all my clients go to see the physio when they start with me and do a full body assessment. And we look at areas that might be hot spots that might because they've got weak calf muscles or they've got tightness here. And we, we design a specific mobility program for them based around the physio's recommendations. Um, and for some folks, they love doing that stuff. And so I might ask them, you know, I might let them do more. But for other folks, getting them to do the minimum that's going to um, address those concerns is probably um, the best that we can hope for. So yeah. nice answer, Jason. Thank you. Yeah, we want once again, the the strength training aficionados are, you know, they, they have been known to uh, combat some of some of those statements or take issue with, with some of those statements. But I think from a very practical perspective, if you just really want to be pragmatic about it, it it's a it's a harder sell than most than most people uh, the, than than most people actually give it credit for. And one additional thing that I'll that, that I'll say with this, 
going back to the fact that we know that trail running in and of itself elicits some greater strength properties as compared to road running, right? And that that's once again clear clear from the emerging literature that's that started to started to come out in that area. I, I do think that even if you wanted to take an ergogenic tact to it, and I don't have issue with coaches and practitioners actually doing that. If you wanted to take, hey, listen, we're going to do, we're going to utilize strength training for very, because it's going to improve your performance, very simply put. You have to do something that is highly individualized and very, and it elicits a very specific adaptation. You cannot get away with generic leg circuits and lunges and body weight exercises and things like that. That is highly unlikely to produce any sort of meaningful positive adaptation because of this higher burden that trail runners have to elicit strength in a strength training program because they're getting some of it, some of it naturally. If you want to do that stuff, great, freaking go after it. Like no big deal. There's no cost, but the time, I mean, I guess you could overdo it. You know, everybody can overdo it. Uh, Triathletes are classic examples of you know, taking, t- taking, <laughs> taking a grain of something and then making it into a pound and then getting injured because of it or whatever. But, yeah, um, yeah. if you want to do it, that's great. But if you're thinking that, that, that some sort of generic, whatever is going to be ergogenic at the end of the day in a trail running application, I've got a bridge to sell you somewhere because that based on everything that we know about trail running as a whole, and also strength training as a whole kind of flies in the f- flies in the face of any sort of reasonable scrutiny. So do think about it and do scrutinize whatever you are doing in the strength training room and try to individualize it as much as possible with some sort of logical rationale. And I I don't know what that is, but you better have something very specific. All right, let's move on now. Um, Nutrition, not just uh, race day nutrition, but daily nutrition. Now, I have read a few books by um, uh, old trainers. Um, Jurek, is it Steve Jurek? Yeah, Scott Jurek, yeah. Scott Jurek, sorry, Scott Jurek, yeah. And he, he um, very famously went plant-based and had that ex- huge run of success. Um, I don't know whether the two are connected. Seemed like his success fell apart when he, he split it with his partner. And so then there's the, you know, the relationship environment whole thing there. Um, I also... I also speak to a lot of people who say, well, I see a lot of the ultra runners are doing um, low-carb, high-fat and keto. And I'm like, well, I'm not sure about how those fit into a high-level endurance program. You know, um, I know you're big on strategic tubers. At least you've got a big thing about them um, that I picked up from your book. Um, and and I, think, I think that's to the, to the same um, – discussion i had with somebody who said i'm going to do strategic carb loading around certain sessions and i'm like wow you know how does that work when you when when you've got lots of training anyway but you're going to specifically put carbs into your diet around this particular workout um so um your nutrition are you do you give nutrition advice or do you have a nutritionist who works with you but so both um i i quickly outstrip my um my expertise in this area uh not that i'm not capable of designing a nutrition program but i realize that there are people that are way better at at, Mm -hmm. at it than i am and um uh it's an easy it's an easy offload you know i trust them and they do a fantastic job um but we we all try to center we all try to center around kind of this fundamental concept of we want about 50 to 60 maybe even 65 percent of the calories coming from carbohydrate and then one gram per kilogram of protein. Once we hit those two things, everything else starts to fall into place. Mm-hmm. So the protein piece, you can definitely go up during intensified training periods, 1.2, 1.5, you know, grams per kilogram protein. That can, that can certainly be as uh, just as effective. But I think if we start with those two cornerstones and the endurance side of things, you, um, you're, you're certainly going to fuel the adaptive processes that you need to fuel. And then in addition to that, you're kind of going to avoid some of the bigger terrain traps, the biggest of which is just low energy availability, which is mm-hmm. becoming more and more of a focal talking point in the endurance community and specifically in the ultramarathon community. Um, this is uh, this is an area that um, 
that Ironman distance triathlon and ultra running actually kind of share in common. And the reason is, is because the metabolic output, it's not too dissimilar, you know, cause the event lengths are about the same. Yeah. That you've got different modalities and maybe you can say there's a higher energetic component on the run versus the bike. But when you kind of like look at things on balance, they, they, they kind of share a lot of, uh, they share a lot of similarities. We do have a, we do have a cohort of athletes and practitioners in the ultra running world, just like you do in the triathlon world that are the low carbohydrate or what they will call the optimized fat metabolism, um, uh, crowd. And I can't profess to, to be able to distinguish all these different permutations of low carbohydrate and strategic fat and non-strategic this and things like that. They, they, there's, there tends to be very, uh, kind of very little consistency. Um, and some of those athletes have been just like in the triathlon community have been quite successful. Um, the one, the one common thread though, that I think we've seen within both of those communities is that whenever the, whenever we do see these, these successes with athletes that have under undertaken either a low carbohydrate or some sort of optimized fat metabolism type of diet is they also lose weight. And I, I, I think that that's the, kind of the biggest, you know, that's, that's the biggest stone to kind of un uncover whenever we're evaluating what is actually driving the performance of a lot of athletes that undertake these types of diets is that the ones that end up being successful and especially are being successful over longer periods of time, they're just at a reduced body weight. And that's not me advocating for the diet for that type of diet as a way to lose weight. But it is a common fact and nobody wants to say it. That's what's been really weird in the ultramarathon world is there have been several examples of elite ultramarathon runners who have undergone a low carbohydrate or some sort of optimized fat uh, type, type of diet and their performances, you know, get, get better. We can kind of, I can go through the laundry list of people who have done that and they all want to, they all want to credit the diet as to the mechanism of their actual performance improvement when the bigger mechanism is their body weight is down by like six or eight percent which is which is kind mm -hmm. of which is kind of a big deal and who knows you know diet catalyze that or you know different period of life or kind of whatever that being said those athletes are very few and not even close to the top step of the podium so if you want to draw inspiration from elite athletes, you really have to look at the best of the best. And all of those men and women are use, utilizing either very standard carbohydrate approaches and or they're combined with higher carbohydrate approaches on actual race day. So they're in the 80 to 100 grams per hour uh, uh, type, type of program on uh, a type of program on race day, which you see in which you see in the triathlon world as well. Have you found, Jason, that Actually, with with the elite athletes that are the most successful, they're the folks that actually can consume more food. You know, whether it's in between training or on race day, they just can feed their body with more energy so they can sustain a performance. Um, you know, I've, I've read books about Navy SEALs training and the guys who get through hell a week are often the ones who can just feed themselves more. Um, they're not they're not necessarily the best soldiers or the fittest guys. They're the ones who can just keep their energy levels up. Back to your point about low energy levels, you know, if you if you're not eating a lot and there's not a lot of nutrients and and fuel going in, then your performance is going to suffer at some point. Yeah, I mean that is a big part of it. I'm not going to say that the best eaters are always the best athletes. I mean, I've had athletes that have had you know kind of bad days nutrition wise out on the race course and won really big really big races. So it's certainly not a perfect, certainly not a perfect correlation, but make no doubt about it that the, the, the foodstuffs that you take in, they fuel the adaptive process, right? So let's not, you know, let's not like kid ourselves here. There as much as, as much talk as there is about a low carbohydrate, this, or a periodized fat approach here, there's just as much discussion around things like fasted training and doing like low carbohydrate sessions and things like that. And this is one of the things that I think that especially, uh, athletes that are on, you know, very high volume and or very intensified training program programs actually need to watch out for because yeah, yeah, you can get some of those metabolic adaptations by doing a, 
fasted run or a double day on low carbohydrate availability. Like I get that. Like all I've got, I pull all that research out actually in, in, uh, in, in the book in a very specific chapter, but you still compromise the total adaptive process whenever you do that. So you're trading a very specific adaptation that's most likely transient, right? So your metabolics change for a day or three or four or five days or something like that. And you're probably compromising the long-term adaptive processes because you don't have simply the fuel availability to build all of these things that you've then broken down during training. So once again, we need to take a more, we need to take a more chronic uh, viewpoint and look at training through a more chronic long-term lens because the chronic nature of endurance training is something that is evergreen. Uh, Mm -hmm. It takes months and months and months and sometimes years to produce some of these adaptations. And you can always get around, you know, you can always show things in a lab over the course of, you know, a few, a few weeks by altering substrate availability and things like that. But the, the, how long those adaptations actually last and, and they, and are they actually going to be meaningful at the end of a whole training process that actually lasts a year? That is a really open, that is a extremely open question. So to kind of, to, to kind of put a, to kind of like punctuate, you know, this whole point is, is. First off, I just want to make sure that people are taking in enough calories. Let's just start there. Let's just make sure that we're fueling for the work required. Then once we have the calories, do you have an adequate proportion of carbohydrate and enough protein per your body weight? You get those two, those three components down, those three pillars. And then you kind of call the day-to-day nutrition almost good. Yeah, sure. We want more fruits and vegetables and you know high nutrient diets and kind of things like that. But let's just start with the basics because... I think all too often we're trying to play a lot of this like metabolic trickery when we really don't need to, and we just need to focus on the fundamentals. I've, I've spoken with a lot of nutrition experts over the years, and most of those folks who've done research and are working at a high level of uh, uh, with high level athletes in a range of different sports are very pragmatic when it comes down to it. They wrinkle their faces up when you talk about this particular diet or that particular approach. And um, they nearly always come back to exactly what you said. Oh, are we getting enough calories? Is it high quality nutrient dense? And have we got our proportions right of fats to carbs to protein? And if you're doing those right, you can start playing around with everything you like. But if you're not doing those right, then it doesn't matter what else you try and how clever it is. It's not going to work. Um, and again, it's one of the things I find most frustrating and maybe back to your point right at the beginning about triathletes that's always willing to try new stuff is that they want that they they sort of invested in this marginal gains thing far too easily and there's a huge number of very simple gains they can have like like low-hanging fruit that are right in front of them hitting them in the face but they tried to climb to the top of the tree to get this one little one percent thing that they can have is that, that, that and it's back to Stephen Silas point as well if you focus on getting all the basics right, whether that's training or sleep or nutrition, you are going to get a huge way along the road towards the performance you want. And the other stuff is the icing on the cake that comes right at the end when you get the basics right. Yeah. And here's what I always have come back to as well is, is you still it's still a hard sell that any of that is actually making a difference anyway. And they're, they're high it takes a lot of energy to chase those things down to get the perfect amount of carbohydrate depletion at the end of the workout. So you're eliciting a very specific metabolic response that takes not just, I'm not talking about the effort that it takes during the workout, but the effort that it takes to like figure that out and, and similar things to that out is normally not worth the return and it's normally not positive anyway because it's a one up 10 down right if you get it perfect you get one tenth of one percent but if you don't get it perfect you go down two or four percent like and i don't i don't like playing those i don't, I don't like playing those ratios with anything and nutrition mm. just happens to be one where there are a lot of cases where where that could actually unfold I had a conversation with malcolm brown i'm not sure if you know him malcolm was uh, yeah. very influential with the brownlees um, yeah. in their sort of um, successes. I chatted with him once about their nutrition and he said, you know what, they've got a lot They've got a lot on the plate with getting all that training done. I don't want to add more to it by getting them to start focusing on uh, your nutrition and telling them they can't eat this or they have to eat that. They just need to eat lots of food to fuel eight hours of training a day. And that's it. I'm not going any further with it. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I saw some people 
they, they, they once put a, a Twitter post on about the shop. There was three of them pre-2012 Olympics, three of them staying in the house and they'd been to the local supermarket and there was sort of half a dozen bags full of shopping for the week to feed these three hungry triathletes. And people were picking it apart saying, well, where's this? And there doesn't seem to be much of that there. And, you know, I, I remember having a chat with somebody who pointed it out to me. I said, look, they need calories. They need calories. And you can't fuel calories with spinach. Uh, you can't fuel that performance <laughs> with bowls full of spinach all the time. There's got to be some ice cream and some other stuff just to get the calories in. Um, and anyway, they won, Alistair's won two gold medals. So, um, you know, it's working for him. So why would you pull it apart? Yeah. I mean, what, I have the same experience with my elite athletes who, you know, have won Western States and UTMB and all these big kind of name ultra marathons is you, you'd be, most people would be surprised how simple their nutrition program, both their day-to-day nutrition program and their race nutrition programs actually are is far disproportionate to the complexity that gets talked about on social media and in the lay publications and things like that. And it, and once again, they're succeeding. Yes, they are good athletes. Let's just get that out of the way. Yeah, they're good. They're physiologically talented. They train a lot. You know, they do the right things in training and stuff like that. But they are also succeeding because of the simplicity of their nutrition program. Per- like period. They are they. And in fact, the ones that I can point out a few examples of this. The ones that have tried to overcomplicate it, it usually goes awry. And that's why I come back to this up-down proposition to where, yeah, I know I can do, let's just take, let's just take a, one of the very classic, one of the very classic interventions that is used to promote greater fat oxidation, right? And that's a two-day workout. So you go, you do your first workout in a fed state, you know, in the morning, and then you go and do your second workout in a fasted state. And then in fasted state, because you've already depleted your carbohydrate stores for the first workout. You're supposed to elicit, you know, greater amounts of fat oxidation for, for, for the sec- during the second activity. And that has some sort of, you know, carryover effect into workouts in the future. I get it. I understand. I totally understand that you can absolutely 100% get that, uh, uh, get that adaptation. However, if you're doing that and running into an issue where you are chronically in a low energy availability state. Mm-hmm. You then have traded potentially what, let's just say 1% maybe that you might be able to get like per, from a performance perspective, if that, based on that type of intervention, you can screw it up on the order of negative, maybe a thousand percent, maybe infinite, right? Because then you're whatever vocabulary you want to use, overtrained, overfatigued, under-recovered, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever vocabulary you want to use there. So I, I look at those interventions and say, if the precision of getting it correct is so great and the improvement that you get is so very finite and the potential downside is very real and big i don't want to touch mm. it sorry no. it's it's not i just i'm just not all that interested in it because i could pick a thousand different other interventions that are not mutually exclusive that are safer more efficacious yeah. better in the end run like i've got a whole host of arrows in the in, in my quiver to to choose from and this has always been my issue with the metabolic magicians out there. And I, I very jokingly refer to them as magicians is that for whatever reason, you have become overly fixated on one arrow in your quiver and that's altering substrate metabolism. And I, I don't know why, I don't know why that's the itch that you kind of want to scratch, but you are doing so not at the expense, but being blinded to all of the other ways that you can improve. And I don't know why the the low carbohydrate community is kind of notorious for this. And for the record, I know a lot of people in the low carbohydrate community that I have a lot of respect for that take a more pragmatic approach with it. But that's not that's not the performative majority. The majority the majority tends to focus almost exclusively on these metabolic substrate adaptations that you can get either through a combination of diet and or training as the way to improve performance and neglecting. All the simple training stuff, volume, intensity, periodization, individualization, all these fundamental training principles that I kind of mentioned mm-hmm. earlier that drive 10x the type of adaptation, maybe even 100x the type of adaptation that you're going to get. And I can't look at that through a logical lens and say that that's a good choice. You're focus- yeah. You're literally focusing on something that matters way less 
sometimes to the expense of the things that matter 10, 20, 30, 40, yeah. 50 X more. You, uh, you touched a little bit on the simplicity of the elite athletes race nutrition. Uh, is there anything, you know, I know a lot of triathletes that we've talked about precision fuel and hydration, um, of which I'm also a big fan. Um, but I know some people like to use S fuels and they, they like to use Morton and, what have you? Do you have any thoughts about any of those, or are you just trying to? Are you encouraging people just to eat real food as they're going along? Well, I, I think if you want to boil it down to kind of like the fundamental strategies, first off, we try to get the hydration right first, because the hydration mm-hmm. side of it tends to t- tends to kind of set the linchpin of um, uh, it. Kind of t- it it sets the table to use a food analogy. It sets the table for the rest of the nutrition program, and here's why. In most ultra marathons, you go through a big temperature range, right? You start out in the morning. Or in the in Europe, you actually start out in the evening for a lot of races, but then you go through the day. So you go from night to day, and th- and during those temperature changes, your hydration requirements, specifically with the amount of fluid that you're taking in, that can vary as much as four x. Right? You start out with a program that's 250 milliliters an hour, and then you go to a program in the middle of the day that's a liter, you know, 1,250 milliliters per hour very easily. And the dynamicness of that, just the fluid requirements, because it is so dynamic, and some of that is going to set kind of the base level of calories that you're taking in at the time. For those two reasons, that that becomes the most fundamental piece. Then once we figure out what the hydration requirements are, we can start to layer on the food and the calories that is that are going to make up the difference from the caloric target range that we have set for any one for any one individual. But the sequence I always take the same. It's let's figure out your hydration requirements first. What product are we going to use? And typically I'm steering people into a lower calorie product. So scratch labs, which is at you know 80 kilocalories per 500 mils or even uh, precision hydration, um, their uh, their hydration products are typically at sixty calories uh, per per five hundred mils, something around there to uh, to accommodate for this dynamicness and the fluid requirements over the over the entirety of the of the events. In most applications, I'm steering people away from the higher calorie drinks because of that same reason. Because if you are going to need a liter of fluid an hour and you're using a product like scratch uh, super fuel and that has 300 calories in in a 500 milliliter bottle you're then blowing your calorie budget all on one thing you can use that in a very specific application during the night where you just want to get all your calories and your hydration from one thing i've i have no issue with that but it's it, it's not sustainable when you go through those big uh through those big temperature ranges so my point is, is we set the hydration products and the hydration plan down first, and then we layer on the foodstuffs on top of that. Most of the time, we're just defaulting to your prototypical engineered foods. And because GI distress is one of the biggest, um, is one of the biggest issues that athletes will encounter during an ultra marathon, that's where we steer towards in terms of the product recommendations is which ones are going to elicit the last or have the highest likelihood of eliciting less of a GI distress. And we just go through trial and error during training. Is it this product? Is it that product? Is it chewable? Is it a gel? Is it a combination of real foods and gels and stuff like that? So we're not, uh, we're not promoting a Dean Canazis style rolled up for eat pizza burrito <laughs> type thing then. <laughs> no, he would cringe at that. I mean, Dean is a very great friend of mine. I've served as coach and advisor to him for, you know, any, 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 any number of years when he's trying to do something stupid. And, um, <laughs> I can, I can attest to, uh, the fact that, uh, those days are long behind him. <laughs> um, just a couple of other, um, couple of other questions, uh, because I think if we stay on much longer, Jason, you're going to need that gel. We're coming up. Yeah, to, there we uh, go. I know I'm going to bomb. We're c- coming around at two hours now. Um, kit requirements. We talked about walking poles. Um, I presume that they're useful, but, uh, for some athletes, but when would you recommend that they're, they're a definite on the list? And when would you say you probably don't need them? Yeah, it's really interesting, right? We kind of don't know everybody, especially in Europe uses them and we don't have a lot of good evidence to say that they actually make a difference. They're just, just recently, maybe past uh, eight weeks, 
there was a really neat study done um, uh, uh, out of Italy where they used instrumented poles and instrumented insoles to measure power or force, essentially, which they can then convert to power at the level of the pole and the level of the foot. So think about a, literally a strain gauge like you'd see in any power meter that mm -hmm. is attached to the shaft of a pole and then actually embedded into uh, into the into the insert of the foot. And the aim of the study was to try to figure out that or try to figure out if, in fact, poles do save your legs. And what that colloquial or what that means from a scientific standpoint is, does the force that you're exerting on the pole have some sort of effect of alleviating the force that you then need at the level of the foot? Huh. And, and it turns out the answer to that question is actually yes. You do exert some amount of force at the level of the pole that then relieves the force that is needed at the level of the foot to go at the same speed. And that kind of seems like one of those scientific studies is like, well, no shit, of course that's what's going on. But until you really like tease those things out, it's hard to actually say yes, that they are, that, that they, that they actually are beneficial. So the, the way to, the way to, the, the way to contextualize how polls can improve performance, it's really upon three, three very distinct areas. The first area is, can they help you go faster in an uphill condition? So you're exerting the same metabolic cost and somehow they're enabling you to go faster. Turns out that probably the answer to that question is likely yes, right? Really? Maybe, wow. Yeah. So may, maybe at, at certain steeper grades, you can have the same metabolic output and they can help you to actually go faster. Second thing is, is do they actually save some sort of force on your legs, right? Does it spread the 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 muscular requirements of going up a hill does it spread them out slightly differently and this is the study i was referring to earlier turns out that the answer to that might actually be yes as well so not only are we trying to go faster but even at the same speed it allows some sort of muscular savings right some sort of fatiguing savings uh, at the level of the leg which are the primary things that are that are becoming fatigued and then we move into a downhill condition so can it actually alleviate the the amount of muscular damage or even fatigue that happens in a downhill condition that hasn't been studied yet, but you do see some of the most skilled, uh, trail users that use poles also use them in a downhill condition. Um, so I would be an advocate for anybody to use poles that has any component of hiking in an ultra marathon kind of for kind of for all of those reasons. Now they're not magic, right? They're not wizard sticks as you know, sometimes we'll, we'll hear that vocabulary kind of thrown around, especially in North America. They, they're not magic. You do have to use them. You do have to train with them. Um, you do have yeah. to get accustomed to deploying them and using them actually out on the trail and then stowing them. They can be a net negative if you are not used to using them. But if you're going to do any ultra marathon with any appreciable amount of climbing and descending, pick up a pair of poles and start training with them. Um, I do have athletes going back to your, um, uh, back to your earlier ask of what do you do when you live in an urban environment and you're training for a mountainous event? I do have athletes and it becomes in that situation and it does become a little bit of a point of consternation of, do they actually use the poles during a race because they don't have the opportunity to train with them right? Mm -hmm. They're not going to use them in, you know, around central park or wherever they're training, wherever their flat training <laughs> venue actually is. And there, I would say it's a little bit of a toss up question, whether or not you use poles in that situation where you really can't truly train with them because they can be a net negative, uh, if you don't have the skill and also the kind of strength, uh, uh, uh to use them. But if you can train with them, you get them out on the course, you use them a couple times a week, uh, during the training process, Absolutely, they can be of, of benefit across a wide variety of, of ultra applications. Okay, um, footwear. I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to. Let's let's try and keep this short, Jason, because I'm uh, I'm thinking about the time we've been speaking here. But footwear. I guess I guess it's very individual. But are there certain things that one might be thinking about when selecting footwear? And you know, maybe it's specific to the type of event you're doing and the terrain. Again, back to that sort of. Um, yeah. So first horses, off, horses for courses thing. 
Yeah. So for, I mean, first off, because the train is so undulating, you have to put an emphasis on the way that the shoe is shaped compared to your foot. You're going to pay a higher penalty for a last that isn't the correct width or an upper that does not uh, kind of cradle your foot in the in the correct way. You're going to pay a higher penalty for that on the trails versus on the road because the camber is always changing and things like that. So it has to start with that, just the shape of the shoe and how your foot fits inside of it. Second thing to look at is, are the, the kind of the cushioning properties of the shoe. And this is an area where we tend to, in most applications, try to put athletes in more cushioned shoes simply because it's going to help them over the longer duration of the event. We're not concerned about any loss of running economy because it tends to be kind of a, a null impact or certainly is kind of outweighed by the by by the shoes capabilities of handling some of the pounding that the athlete is actually going through. The third thing to think about is is the 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 traction properties of the shoe. And this can vary greatly by the event that the athlete is training for. You're going to use a completely different shoe over a fell running course to our earlier example. Uh Something that's probably a little bit lower to the ground is a little bit more lugged is a little bit more agile. You're going to use a completely different shoe on that as compared to the ultra trail de Mont Blanc, which has a lot of climbing, a lot of descending. It's not the most technical type of of, of trail out there. So you can have something that's a little bit more highly cushioned and you don't have to have something that's so heavily lugged. So if you kind of go across all of those three components, and I would say in that order, in that order of priority, how it fits your foot first, the cushioning property second, and the outsole properties third, I think you're beyond, you're on the right you're on the right track to finding the right type of footwear for you. Mm. Um, any other any other bits of kit that um, we think will prove useful rather than just listening to the adverts and the marketing? <laughs> you know Hydra- Hydra- what do you think about the hydration vests that they're all that, that are fairly popular at the moment yeah i mean those have come a long way you know they're actually quite comfortable and form-fitting now with the soft flasks up front um and in speaking of poles it becomes very convenient to be able to you know not use your hands to take the bottle out and just reach your you know literally reach your mouth over on the kind of the nipple of the bottle or even if it has a small straw on the mm-hmm. straw of the bottle and take it and take a plug there. Um, but the hydration vests that are out there, they're all great. There's a number of different brands that, you know, all kind of suit the same, the, that kind of suit the same needs, but moving to soft flasks that are up front, as well as a pocketed vest that you can store, you know, food and kind of emergency items in has become fairly standard. Um, you're, you're starting to see fewer and fewer, uh, hi- classic hydration packs with the hydration on the back. And the hose coming through simply because it, they're hard to fill up at aid stations. They're a pain mm-hmm. in the butt to clean. You know, they don't sit quite as well when you're running on like really rocky terrain and stuff. So the, the, the packs that are out there are actually quite great. Okay. Final thing. This could, I guess this could be a podcast in its own actually. Um, oh God. <laughs> mental, men, mental skills. Is this something we can work on or have you either got it or you haven't? hundred percent. You can work on it with, without any shadow of a doubt. And I, there's framework work in the book. It's in one of the latter chapters on how we actually periodize those mental skills so that they build off of each other much in the same way as your physical toolkit can kind of build off of each other. Um, so a- absolutely. That is a big, big part of it. And I think it's even bigger in ultra marathon because of this unknown component, I'm going to take a few. I'm going to take a few more minutes. You got to give me the floor here because I think sure, no, really no, cool. sure, sure. I, I think it's a really, I think it's a really cool component. So there's this, um, there's this facet of the psychobiological model of fatigue, which is it's kind of the 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 newest permutation of the cent- of Tim Noakes' central governor model. If you guys have been yeah. keeping track of all of this stuff, it was developed by a, a researcher named Samuel Markora. And there's a facet, uh, there's a facet within this that describes how we meter our efforts during our, during a task, how we actually pace out an effort. So you can think about going to an interval or even running a marathon, Mm -hmm. how we actually go about and do this. And this facet is called the perceived exertion endpoint interaction. And it is as the name actually describes, all it describes is when we are out to pace a task that we are constantly taking evaluation points of how do I feel right now? 
and extrapolating that to how we think we're going to feel at the end of a task. And is that tolerable? So you can think about, I'm going to do a marathon 2k into the race. I can think, okay, I'm 2k in, I've got 40 kilometers left. This is how I feel now. 40 kilometers down the road. I'm going to feel like this. Is that tolerable? Okay. Yeah, it is. I'm going to continue at this pace. You get to the half marathon point. Okay. This is how I feel right now. Okay. I've got halfway to go. How, how am I going to feel at the end of the race? Okay. That's tolerable. I'm going to, I'm going to keep going at this pace. You get to the 30 kilometer mark. You're like, yeah, you know what? I'm starting to run a little bit hard at, at the 40 kilometer mark. That's probably too much intensity for me. So now I'm going to back off. You're constantly doing that over any task that you ask yourself to perform maximally on you're, you're, you're drawing this internal line between where you're at and where you think you're going to be. Mm. And you're adjusting your effort based off of the slope of that line that works very well in normal endurance circumstances, a set of intervals, a marathon, half marathon, 10 K that, that perceived exertion endpoint interaction works pretty well for, for us to pace ourselves it completely breaks down in an ultra situation. And it's because we can't forecast that far. We do not have the capacity and we are extremely poor at forecasting at mile 10, how we are going to feel 90 miles down the line, 10, 15, 20 hours down the line, being able to forecast that becomes kind of an impossibility. And it's because of it's, because of this and a whole host of other aspects that mental skills and ultra running become paramount because we can't rely on these physical pieces of pacing and effort regulation. We have to dig into the mental toolbox to deal with this lack of forecasting or poor forecasting that we're inevitably faced with. And this shows up very readily when people drop out of races. It's a very common, very common occurrence where people will get into an aid station, usually late into a race, and they'll sit down in a chair and they'll think to themselves, I feel so bad right now. I can't imagine how bad I'm mm -hmm. going to feel 20 miles down the line, not realizing that they're really shit at making that forecast. They're very poor at that forecasting model. They drop out of the race, they go back to their hotel room, and they immediately regret the decision. Mm -hmm. So the sum total of all of that is, is these mental skills start to become more and more, they start to become more and more important in ultra marathon running because, because a lot of our physical toolkit is going to fail us at some point. I'm looking at your book here, page 339, chapter 15, mental skills for ultra running. I'm definitely going to signpost, yeah. I'm going to signpost that to everybody when I <laughs> encourage them to get hold of the book, Jason. Yeah, uh, shout out I to do, my I, uh, shout, shout out to my good friend and colleague Justin Ross, uh, Doctor Justin Ross, who helped me design that chapter. He was he was very influential in helping me kind of conceptualize what I wanted to actually put uh, uh, put in a book. But once again, it offers a pretty simple framework. You can definitely take it up from there. But uh, hu hugely hugely important in in, tra in trail and ultra running. Well, listen, Jason, this has been an absolutely fascinating podcast for me. Um, because I have to confess that I didn't realize there was so much I didn't know about ultra running until we we chatted. So thank you for uh, thank you for helping me to learn. Thank you for being so gracious and sharing your knowledge to all the listeners. Um, I know that a lot of them are interested in ultra running, and hopefully, uh, having listened to this, they will be more equipped and better equipped to be able to prepare for that event. And uh, definitely, when they combine that with buying your book, um, <clears throat> so uh, you know. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I've, I've, I've really, really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate the opportunity. We will welcome all triathlete converts into uh, trail and ultra running. I guarantee them that is a much uh, simpler sport with far less equipment to train for. Well, Jason Coop from Boulder. Thank you very much. Not Boulder, Colorado. So, uh, yeah, thank you for being here. Of course. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you again to Jason for being my guest on the show this week. I hope you enjoyed both episodes and you're now feeling ready to enter that ultra event that you've had on your bucket list. To make sure you don't miss any one of the episodes in the future, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and click the subscribe button. And while you're there, and if you have a couple of minutes, I'd love it if you can leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. We recently announced our new 
partnership with Precision Fuel and Hydration. And that's really important for you as a listener because it gets you a 15% discount on your first order. Going forward, your regular here founder, Andy Blow, or one of his colleagues on this show sharing some of their latest insights or answering your questions. And on this last point, if you do have a sports nutrition or hydration question that you'd like answering, please send it in to me via beth at the triathloncoach.com and we will get back to you with an answer, the best of which will be aired on this show. You can find links for all of those items I mentioned above in our show notes, so please make sure you check those out. And that's it for this week. Thanks again for being here. And I will see you on the next episode.